This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today。This是《Mobile and I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and really enjoying the little family reunion this episode. <laughs> it's so sweet. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 13, Shuttle Launch. But before we do, we would like to acknowledge our patrons and remind you about a limited time thank you gift that will only be available until tomorrow. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 206 patrons. We broke 200 this week. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our 23 newest patrons. MS09R Thickdom, Alex C, Evipen, Groove, Shane C, Anonymous Foul-Mouthed Patron, Noisy Cat, George Old School Gumpla L, Joseph WK, Roxamo, Shinizel, Rhys N, Robert VA, another anonymous foul-mouthed patron, Torbjorn A, Adam C, Endless Garden, Tom S, Daniel S, Alana C, Broken Bones, Chris D, and Andrew B. Just a side note, if you give your patron name as something with words in it that we wouldn't say in the podcast, I'm not going to say them when I acknowledge you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you get to be an anonymous foul-mouthed patron. Remember, Gundam is a show for kids, and this is a podcast for kids. Ostensibly. <laughs> <laughs> Wholesome family content right here. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. If you are listening to this episode on the day of its release, then today is August 31st, 2019. And tomorrow, September 1st, marks the one-year anniversary of the very first episode of Mobile Suit Breakdown. To celebrate this milestone, we have two special promotions going on, and today is the last day to participate. First, as a thank you to all of our listeners, we are going to release one of our previously patron-only bonus episodes to the public, and you can vote on which one you would like to hear. The current front-runner is Mobile Suit Variations, where Nina and Ali, one of our guests from previous episodes, tipsily review MSV designs. The runner-up is Sharcrossed Lovers, a Shakespeare-inspired audio drama that I wrote, and various friends of the podcast voiced. You can cast your vote by going to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon, clicking Posts, and scrolling down to the one that is a poll. We will release whichever episode wins on Sunday, September 1st, tomorrow. <laughs> 
Second, we want to thank and celebrate all of our patrons who've supported us through MSB's first year, no matter how long they've been with us. Anyone who is a patron as of 12.01 a.m. September 1st will receive a personalized certificate recognizing them as a founding patron. Dollar patrons will receive a digital certificate, while $5 and up patrons will receive a physical one printed on fancy certificate paper and hand-signed by both of us. And on top of that, all patrons who are pledging $5 or more as of 12.01 on September 1st will also receive our limited edition, extremely exclusive Mobile Suit Breakdown Season 1 enamel pin. We ordered 300, kept two, lost one, and are never making any more. Each season of MSB will get its own pin, so if you want them all, this is your only opportunity. You can see samples of the certificate and pin on our social media, where our handle is always at Gundam Podcast whether you're on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And remember, if you're thinking of becoming a patron, today is the last day to join and be included in the founding patron promotion. Mobile Suit Breakdown is our full-time job, and we still have a long way to go before we are able to achieve all of the goals that we have for the podcast, including paying our guests, getting professional transcription for our episodes, and going on research trips, just to name a few. But this year has already put us well on our way, and we are so grateful to all of you who have helped us get here. This week, we research a plane called Valkyrie, art history, interior design trends of the 1980s, and Aristia. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last time. This is a Titans News Network special report, The Earth in Peril. Gentle people of the Earth sphere, the Earth mourns today following the tragic loss of life in the Amazon River Basin after rogue Xeon remnants calling themselves AUG detonated a pair of nuclear bombs, destroying a large section of the Federation's Jaburo base, including the headquarters of the Federation's Welfare Bureau, the Orphan Assistance Agency, and the Directorate of Puppies and Kittens. This attack is merely the latest in a long series of barbarous crimes committed by the AUG against free and peace-loving people everywhere. In even more unsettling news, Titans analysts believe that radicalized Earthnoids may have been involved in helping the AUG saboteurs escape from the Amazon region. Earth Federation leaders were swift to condemn the actions of AUG and to call for an immediate response to find and punish all those responsible. The Earth Federation Forces Staff Headquarters has pledged its full cooperation with the Titans to ensure that they have all the resources and authority necessary to address this critical threat before AUG strikes again. Titans officers have already begun to arrest known AUG sympathizers and have begun compiling a register of all spacenoids believed to hold pro-independence, anti-Earth, or anti-Titan views. Travel bans are now in effect for any spacenoids from known or suspected rebellious colonies, and the Titan's security agency will be rolling out new procedures at security checkpoints at all domestic spaceports over the next few days. The Earth Defense Act, authorizing the suspension of habeas corpus and due process rights for spacenoids, is expected to pass the Federation legislature with overwhelming support. Titan's Captain Bascom announced that he has personally directed his staff to take whatever steps are necessary to locate the mysterious AUG leader known only as Blex and bring him to justice. 
While it will be years before the full consequences of this senseless spacenoid attack on the Earthnoid way of life can be calculated, environmental scientists are already worried that these nuclear blasts may have wiped out the unique and critically endangered population of migratory Jaburo flamingos and dealt a severe blow to the rare rainforest metaphor chimpanzee a species of primate that forms family bonds just like yours. While the rainforest metaphor chimpanzee is not regarded as ecological... Just like your family. Just like your family. In the Amazon. Later on in the program, we'll have an interview with Mr. Kai Shiden, a renowned wildlife photographer who may have taken some of the last photos of these majestic creatures. In a rare spot of good news, it seems that the capybara herds of Jaburo had already migrated out of the area and were spared. In order to show solidarity and demonstrate that the Earthnoid spirit will not be cowed in the face of this tragedy, prominent Earthnoid elites have already begun pledging funds for an uninterrupted parade of masquerade balls, charity polo matches, and caviar tastings. Earthnoids of lesser means wishing to express their patriotism are encouraged to consume and enlist. And now the recap for shuttle launch. Amuro lands his small plane at the landing strip near his home, but spots a group of people at the edge of the field. I'm amazed they made it here, he says to himself, before getting out to greet them. It's his old friend Fra! She and Hayato are married now, and have adopted Kika, Cats, and Let's. They all greet each other warmly, pleased to be reunited. I have so much to tell you, Fra says, asking Amuro if they can stay with him for a while. It'd be my pleasure, he smiles, putting an arm around Fra and leads them all up to the house. Amuro's home is a sprawling mansion, full of art and fine furniture, and with staff to tend it. His photograph of Matilda and the white base crew is propped in pride of place on the mantle. While the maid offers Kika and Letts a snack, Amuro fusses over Fra, who is six months pregnant. Teasing him for his cluelessness over such things, Fra encourages him to get married. After all, he's still carrying a torch for Sela, isn't he? You think the Federation would let me? Let's asks him why he doesn't go to Jaburo, and looking around surreptitiously, Amuro shows them all a note. He believes his staff are Federation soldiers sent to keep an eye on him. He cannot speak freely. They have a quiet dinner, talking of innocent things, and then go for a walk on the grounds. Katz tells Amuro about Hayato, how, as a member of Karaba, he's gone to support the attack on Jaburo. Why aren't you there? he asks Amuro angrily. But Amuro acts as if he's never heard of Karaba, and doesn't know any more about Ayuk than what's on the news. Katz, if you didn't have someone in the shadows, like me, you wouldn't have had a place to run to. But Katz still thinks Amuro is a coward, doing what the Federation tells him to do instead of risking his life to fight them. Fra tries to intervene. She understands Amuro and the position he's in, but Amuro just walks away. He is confined and surveilled by the Federation, and unable to act as he might wish to. Katz's disappointment is clear. How can this be the hero his parents tell him stories about? The Garuda ships full of Ayug forces, led by Hayato in his plane, head for Kennedy Space Center, now under the control of Karaba. There they will find shuttles that can return the Ayug pilots to space. Karaba prepares to fight, as it's only a matter of time before someone tracks the two captured Garuda. They will need to abandon the Space Center and move this base of operations elsewhere. In the command center, coordinating it all, Hayato receives a note from Kai, who has already slipped away. 
In it, Kai reveals that Quattro is actually Shar Aznable. Kai doesn't understand why Shar is content to be a rank-and-file soldier. It smacks of escapism, or cowardice, and Kai doesn't trust him. He's gone to do some independent intelligence gathering, leaving no hint as to when he might return. Out in space, the Argama is under attack but can still make it to a rendezvous with the shuttles, if the shuttles launch in 40 minutes. It is a scramble to get everything ready in time. The shuttles fueled and crewed, the mobile suits loaded, and the shuttles are so old that no one is experienced at piloting them. Apoli is surprised that his will start at all. As the loading is underway, Hayato confronts Quattro about the contents of Kai's letter. This has nothing to do with me, says Quattro, all calm confidence. If I were Shar, why would it matter? Hayato is not put off and replies, you could be a leader, and yet you hide under a false identity. Kai says that makes you a coward. Camille overhears them and it seems to confirm his own suspicions. Who are you really, he demands. I don't see any harm in acknowledging it, Hayato says, but the enigmatic man insists once more that he is only Quattro Bagina. In that case, clench your teeth, Camille yells, before giving a correction of his own, punching Quattro square in the jaw, knocking him back into a wall and sending the sunglasses flying off his face. Why? What reason could you have? Camille asks. Any human can feel shame, Quattro begins to explain, but is interrupted when an alarm goes off nearby. The attacking force has arrived, coming in over the water. One shuttle is destroyed, waiting to take off, before Quattro, Camille, and Roberto can launch their mobile suits. The countdown is moved forward for the remaining shuttle, and it prepares to take off, hoping to get away in time. In addition to regular mobile suits, the Titans have brought another mobile armor that transforms, shaking even Quattro's preternatural calm. The fight destroys parts of the space center and nearby ships, but still the Ayug pilots manage to fight the Titans back and defend the shuttle, until Roberto is shot through the cockpit by the transforming mobile armor. Camille grabs hold of it, managing to hang on until the shuttle has taken off, but the larger, stronger mobile armor breaks free and is soon chasing after the shuttle as it hurtles towards space. The Mark II fires at the mobile armor from the ground, but it is quickly out of range. Get on the Hyakushiki's shoulders, Quattro orders. Once in position, both pilots turn on their mobile suit's thrusters to full power, and they take off after the enemy. Their shots distract the enemy pilot, allowing the shuttle to get away, and when the mobile armor is mid-transformation, Camille spots a vulnerability. With a perfectly timed shot, he knocks it from the sky. Hayato flies by in the Garuda to retrieve Quattro and Camille, and the combined Ayug and Karaba forces set a course for Hickory Airport. The shuttle makes it to space and its crew are reunited with the Argama, and the Titans retake Kennedy Space Center. But with the attack on Jaburo and the most recent battle, it becomes impossible to hide the conflict any longer. Now everyone will know that the Federation forces have split into two factions, at war with one another. The episode this week opens with that whistle again. This is the third time the whistle has shown up in Zeta Gundam. And there's a rule for stories. Once is just a phenomenon, twice is a coincidence, and three times is a pattern. There's something going on with that whistle. 
They like the aesthetics. I guess so. And it's used by both the Titans and a Yug. If we really wanted to read something into it, we could say that there has been a movement, perhaps, in the Space Navies to resurrect some some more traditional methods or, you know, they're trying to harken back to another age. But that's kind of a reach. I don't think we have evidence for that <laughs> necessarily. Uh, they probably just like the way it looks and sounds. And by they, I mean the show's creators. Probably. Let's talk about the Amuro in the room. So I don't actually remember my reaction to when I first saw Frabo and the Orphans. Or should I say Fra Kobayashi? Ooh. <laughs> so she and Hayato did get together. Aw. And they adopted the orphans. And they adopted the orphans, which is so sweet. Quadruple aw. And everybody's all grown up. And just- <laughs> For certain the- values of grown up. They're in like early high school and middle school. Well, for the orphans. But the, the others are in their early to mid 20s. Mm-hmm. Seeing Amuro and Fra engage as old friends was, I thought, very sweet. Yeah. In that way that I imagine many of us have old friends who we maybe had a crush on in junior high and high school, (laughs) maybe dated, maybe never did. It never worked out in any case, but somebody you're still friends with and you have this long relationship based substantially on the fact that you've known each other for a really long time. Yeah, it's really sweet when Amuro like, puts an arm around Fra, or later I think he kisses her on the cheek. It's all very like nice and old friends, platonic friendship kind of thing. And he fusses over her because she's <laughs> pregnant. And she's like, you don't know anything. She is so pleased to be pregnant. <laughs> And also to tell him how little he knows about anything. Frabo has been functionally a mother since she was at least 14. So I'm sure she is now very excited to be biologically a mother as well. I did think that the translation choice when Fra is like, oh, you still have the hots for Sela. <laughs> it's like, why wouldn't you say carrying a torch for? You're still carrying a torch for Sela. Is that not a thing people say? I feel like that's less awkward than like, you've still got the hots for Sela. <laughs> but yeah, that's just me. I don't think you would say that to your like 23-year-old friend after seven years. In front of all your middle school-aged children. <laughs> Actually, when you think about it, this is kind of like Fra getting all of her kids back together in one place. True. Fundamentally, in the parts of this episode that deal with Amuro and Quattro, this is an episode about what we do to our heroes what we expect from them, what we feel that they owe us, and the effect that that has on them. Hmm. That's good. Right? I'm looking forward to exploring that with you. So we get to see this incredible house. Lavish, opulent, palatial. Fancy rugs, ornate furniture, tons of fine art. He's got a tiger skin rug and a bear skin wall hanging. On massive grounds with his own runway for his plane and servants but here's the thing i'm pretty sure this is just a very fancy prison oh yeah golden cage emma tells camille that when she met amuro she thought he was living off of his parents money but i remember what his mother's house looked like (laughs) it was nice but it wasn't anything like this and i remember where his father was living on side six Again, not a pit, but not nice. 
there are some extenuating circumstances here. His dad was clearly in a bad way. Yes. And didn't like care about his surroundings as long as he had access to stuff to tinker with. Possibly, depending on how the patent structure works out, <laughs> Temray might have had some sort of like residual interest in the Gundam development program. Possibly, Amuro has been getting royalties from all of the mobile suits that have been developed since then. We also know that the Haro was mass-produced. Amuro might have uh, sold the design rights to the Haro to whichever toy company made them. Do you have any other <laughs> points you want to make about how Amuro <laughs> could be rich? Well, he might have gone on a speaking tour after the war. The speaking fees can be pretty substantial. So here's the thing. <laughs> uh, it's possible. It's possible that Amuro is very wealthy. Absolutely. However, I don't think he would have any interest in going on a speaking tour. He mentions to Fra and to the kids... The staff of this place are half spy, half guard, <laughs> here to keep an eye on him. And that's Amuro's suspicion. He doesn't know that for certain. And we know Amuro has, for a very long time, for basically the whole time we've known him, been paranoid. But he's also usually been right. But he also pretty explicitly says that he's being controlled by the Federation. When Frost suggests that he ought to get married, he says, do you think the Federation would let me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so he's very clearly being controlled, or if that's just paranoia, he's very paranoid. I imagine sure. there's some indications in his life that they are exerting considerable control over him. When Katz is chiding him for not doing more for the resistance, Amro makes a comment about being trapped there in this lifestyle and how that has made him weak. Like, can't you understand how being forced to live under these circumstances would make me into an ineffectual person? It's very easy to see how the Federation might feel a little threatened by an Amuro Ray once the war is over. Son of Tem Ray, famed scientist, hero of the war, one of these new types that we don't really understand yet. Mm-hmm. Putting him up in this house can be a way for them to sort of propagandize Look how we're treating the hero of the Federation, while at the same time maintaining all this control over them. And he mentions that he is looking after youngsters at Cheyenne. Cheyenne is a major military base. And he opens the episode when he's flying his plane and he's wearing a Federation Forces uniform. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it doesn't have any rank pips, but he is wearing the uniform when he's out flying his plane. So he has some sort of role with the Federation, presumably... He's handling training or he's there to, like, inspire the youths of tomorrow. He's a mascot. He's a recruiting tool. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting that he focuses on the youngsters, on the next generation, because that is a thing that Zeta is clearly very interested in, the generational conflict between the veterans of the one-year war and people of the next generation, Camille's age and Katz's age. Katz accuses Amuro of cowardice. Amuro... Mentions, one, he's already fought in a war. <laughs> Haven't I done enough? Haven't I done enough fighting in my life? Haven't I killed enough people for 10 lifetimes? To which Katz is like, but you're still young. You could kill so many more. How can this guy, who I think is just hiding out, is trying to escape from reality, be the hero that my parents tell stories about? And Fra there sort of crying to herself after trying to smooth all of this over because she understands why Amuro wouldn't want to fight anymore. Yeah. 
she completely understands and she knows that Katz is out of line. But Katz is 14 and... <laughs> well, and she has to see Katz and she has to think of herself and Amaro seven years ago when they were that age fighting in the war. And I think Amaro likes being a safe haven for his friends to come to, right? He likes that he can be there for Fra and the kids. He likes feeling like he's doing something. This is something he can feel good about. But the scars of the war are clearly visible on him even still. For as much as he seems to be living a nice, comfortable life here, you know, when the episode opens, he's flying his plane, he's pouring sweat. He's clearly very nervous flying. He's doing it anyway, but he's still uncomfortable doing it. I have to imagine that for him, being in the air, flying, is like being back in battle, like being back in space, which has its appeal, right? It's exciting. It makes you feel alive. It feels meaningful in a way that the post-war life hasn't. But it's also an intense, arresting emotional feeling. And that song he's listening to oh, about that's... a tender heart <laughs> tormented by suffering. Yep. Sad ballads. That's definitely about him. The thing that struck me about Amaro's position is that in his relationship to the Federation and in his relationship to people like Katz, who think of him as a hero, and I think he is a hero, as much as any of them are <laughs> from the one-year war, but there's this sense of ownership that society has over him because he's still alive, mm -hmm. basically. If he had died in the war... There would be battles over his legacy and how that got propagandized and by who. But now it's battles over his physical self. <laughs> it's this effort to control the man. And I think the design of his house plays a role in that. Now, we could talk, I think, for an entire episode of MSB just about Amaro's house. But I will say Amaro's house is full of luxurious fancy classical art from a variety of different genres and eras, but it's like a museum designed to show off all of these objects. And Amaro is one more piece of this museum. He's there to live the hero lifestyle and to... Inspire the next generation of Federation soldiers. Exactly. In a meta sense, this view of Amaro's very lavish lifestyle is for us, the viewers, a view into what life is actually like for the elites on Earth. Big mansions, fresh beef servants, and they're insulated from what's happening in the world. They're insulated from the war. Amaro, whether this is true or just a plausible lie, says he's never heard of Caraba, and he only knows what he's heard on the news about Ayug. I thought he was being facetious, coy. While they are less likely to be under surveillance out in the garden, it's not impossible that someone is listening to them. Perhaps, but it's plausible for everyone involved that Amaro actually hasn't heard about these things because his lifestyle insulates him. And in perhaps the most childish moment of Katz's entire rant, he's like, tell me you at least have a Gundam hidden under here or something. <laughs> Amaro Wayne, playboy billionaire. <laughs> As a child, he had a traumatic experience with mobile suits. His parents are dead. Which led him to adopt the persona of mobile suit man. We don't know that his parents are dead. It's questionable whether Tem is, and his mother is probably still alive. Well. They're dead to we, him. We think of him as effectively an orphan. He's one of those rare orphans whose parents are still alive. I don't know how rare that is. 
The one thing in Amuro's house that doesn't fit is sitting on his mantelpiece, and it's the snapshot that Kai took of the white base crewmen with Matilda. And it's just a little section of the photograph. It's Amuro and Matilda with some random unnamed character in between them. And it's sitting on his mantelpiece next to a couple of paintings in gold frames. And there's a fancy vase and a fancy fine china plate. But the snapshot is just in a simple black frame, no adornment. And it's at an angle different from the other ones. It is off kilter to the rest of this world, just like Amuro is inside. It's weird that they dress for dinner. I mean, not weird. It fits into the whole thing, but like it stands out. They all dress very fancily for dinner. It's a way to emphasize how elite and rich they are. And Katz is at that everybody older than me is a phony stage. Truth. I assume he has a copy of Catcher in the Rye in his backpack. The thing that this episode does that I found particularly wonderful is that it takes this theme of heroicism and heroes as human people and what the public feel they are owed by a heroic persona, and it takes our classic rivals, Amro and Shar. We have in the same episode, Quattro being confronted by those same kinds of expectations, ideas, accusations. He and Amro are in different positions in some ways and are taking different approaches to their situation in some ways, but they're both coming into this as people who were heroes of the war. It's unclear how much people know about Char at this point, if he's a hero because he was killing the zombies or <laughs> or just because he was such a good fighter and he was considered to have like fought honorably or or why I mean, he, at this point he might be one of the last surviving like heroes of Zeon. Well, and to some degree, people who remember the sort of like spacenoid independence aspects of Zeon or you know, the, the political goals of Char's father may sort of hold him up as a hero of those ideals rather mm -hmm. than a hero of fascist xenophobic Zeon. All of those things about Char from his past, his position, the legacy, the legend of the Red Comet, completely independent of his own individual qualities and desires, make him a rallying point for Spacenoids, for Xeon Remnants, for Mew-type enthusiasts around the system. Like Amuro, the legend of Shar Aznable is very powerful and very important, and it's something that can be fought over. And something that various different groups can attempt to control or use for their own ends. And it's something that is inextricable from the like physical body of the person, but is not the same as the person. And each of them is trying to escape it in various ways. I see Kai's letter, which he writes to Hayato and has delivered, as parallel to Katz's confrontation with Amuro. It's a moment where someone is confronting the man with, these are my expectations of you based on what I know about you. These are the ways in which you are not living up to those expectations. And these are the personal consequences. Like, this is how I feel about you because of that and the action that I'm taking because of that. And when Camille pops him one good later in the episode, that's the same sort of thing. It's how dare you shirk your responsibilities, kapow. 
Basically, people whose names start with K have a predisposition to hassle heroes of the war. K.A., actually. Kai, Katz, and Camille. Everyone keeps telling Char that he should be a leader because he is famous uh, or because he holds this sort of mythic status. But his record there is mixed at best, (laughs) right? Like, he's always been able to command this loyalty because of his own skill. And to some degree now, because of what people know about who he is and some of the things he's done. But I don't think he has shown himself to be a particularly good leader. That's an expectation everyone else has of him (laughs) because he was part of Space Noid Independence early on, because he's part of this legacy. You know, Mm -hmm. he's a descendant of Zeon Zumdekun. And so... And he is, in his own person, the Red Comet, hero of the war. As we've observed in the past, serving under Shah Aznable is a pretty quick way to get yourself killed. It's not as if following him works out particularly well for his subordinates. We speculated frequently in First Gundam as to what exactly his aims were, and that we were thinking it'd be something along the lines of like a space noid state, <laughs> free and independent of control from Earth. Well, or like a new type state. Right. It's unclear if he is still working towards that goal. I have frequently speculated that he's not really serving Ayuk. And so perhaps part of his resistance to being a leader is because he doesn't want to lead this organization. He doesn't really believe in Ayug, and he's not really trying to help Ayug achieve its goals. He is with Ayug because it serves some other end that he has in mind. Mm-hmm. We know he's got his own intelligence. We know he's got his own stuff going on and is not perhaps always perfectly forthcoming with the organization to which he belongs. So... It's interesting to me that everybody keeps telling him, you should be a leader, you should be a leader. (laughs) Well, one of the running themes in Zeta so far has been what other people expect from you. And usually that has been expressed with Camille. You know, that is the undercurrent in the confrontation between Camille and Wong Li and all of the fights between Camille and other Ayuk people that come in the wake of that. Camille... It's all about what they expect from Camille and how they are going to force Camille to provide it, to do what they ask of him, to do what is expected of him, to fulfill his responsibilities. This is the same thing now, but it's being directed towards Quattro. It's being directed towards Amaro. You have these abilities. You can't walk away from who you are and what you can do just because you want to. And in the chaos of You see 87 in the power vacuum where the space noids desperately need a leader. Char is one of the few people who could be that leader. Maybe he shouldn't, but he could be. And for him to discard that name, take on another identity, and dally around with Ayug, I can see why Kai would call that escaping from reality. And cowardly. I thought it was interesting when Camille punches Quattro. He says, I don't care what reasons you might have. And this is more of Camille replicating what has been done to him. He is passing it along. Hurt people hurt people. I don't care what your excuses are. I don't want to hear it. It's exactly what Wang Li told him. From the view of the younger generation, from the view of a Katz or a Camille, people like Amaro and Quattro bear a lot of the responsibility for the current war insofar as the current war is a product of the last one, right? Mm-hmm. Like... This is additional fallout from the one-year war. This has to do with a whole bunch of unresolved political issues, 
from the one-year war that are now turning violent. They fought in the war. They could theoretically have been politically active afterwards. Maybe they were and it didn't work out and then they stepped away. Maybe they never tried. And now here we are. I felt like when Camille hauls off and punches Quattro, a big part of the reason for that is everybody hounds Camille to feel a sense of responsibility, and yet where is Quattro's sense of responsibility for this situation that mm-hmm. has produced the war? Absolutely. And as much as we think that it might not be the best thing for the world if Quattro were to take on a more commanding role, right after we see the letter, when Hayato is reading it, and we see Kai chiding Quattro for refusing to step up and be the leader that he could be, we then, in the episode, see Quattro do exactly that on a small scale. When they get the word of the Titan's attack, Quattro takes command of this whole Caraba operation, even though nobody knows who he is or why he's in charge, and they all disagree with his orders, he gives them in such a way that they all follow them anyway. He has a natural quality of leadership to him. This is kind of a sidebar, but everything about Hayato's handling of this situation just made me think like, oh, I bet Hayato's a really good dad. <laughs> Well, because he's very gentle. He gives Quattro the opportunity to read the letter first. And like Hayato believes the letter. There's no question here, really. But he wants to give this. He's not going to try to scare this person or corner this person. And even later, when Camille overhears their conversation and Camille confronts Quattro, Hayato is very gentle again. And he says, I don't see the harm in admitting it. (laughs) Yeah. Hayato in the running for best Gundam dad, definitely. Although Tom thought it was very uncool that Hayato showed Quattro Kai's letter. Yeah, Kai gave you that letter in confidence, Hayato. Also, you should probably know that Quattro just like kills people all the time, is like really good at killing and doesn't have any compunctions about it. So like if he's invested in maintaining his disguise, maybe don't tell him that your friend has figured out his disguise. Everyone has figured out the disguise. Yeah, but they're all being cool about it. Further parallels to the Amaro scenes. Tears, although with Quattro they are his own. Instead of Fra crying over the fact that Amaro is in this sort of torn, tortured position and you know being dressed down by a kid who doesn't understand, uh, we have Quattro crying after getting punched in the face, not, I think, because of the pain, but he says something right afterwards about, like, this is youth. (laughs) (laughs) As he's, like, flying slowly backward through the air, tears streaming from his eyes. Ah, this is youth. But again, (laughs) this idea that those accusations of cowardice being leveled at them, that sort of violent anger being directed at them, is by young people who don't understand. Mm Mm-hmm. And Katz even gets angry at Amaro because after he's made all these accusations, Amaro is sort of calmly responding and not getting agitated. And it's like, why aren't you angry at me? (laughs) And I think Camille, too, is angered by Quattro's calmness. I agree with that. But I think a lot of what Camille is doing here is replicating what has been done to him. He corrects Quattro the same way that Camille has been corrected. Except with the courtesy of a warning. Clench your teeth. Pow! Which, in case you're wondering, is what you're supposed to do if you're about to get hit in the jaw. It helps protect your brain because it tightens your jaw and neck muscles. And so your brain doesn't get whipped around quite so much inside your skull. And it guarantees you won't bite your own tongue. 
or crack your teeth together. Or get your jaw dislocated. Lots of benefits <laughs> is what we're saying. Camille thinks that Char is going to feel better if he lives his truth and reveals his identity, but he misjudges Shaquatro here a little bit. Only two things make Shaquatro feel better, killing zombies and killing people who aren't zombies. Well, you have to come back to Quattro's earlier comments about how he's not fit for any other life. That his time as a soldier and his time pursuing revenge have left him unable to function in life as a non-soldier. And in, I think, the first expression of regret we have ever heard from him, after he gets knocked to the floor, he makes a comment about how even someone like me can feel shame. Yeah. And we don't get to hear any more about that because immediately the klaxons go off and the fighting starts. I think he has become, over time, and as a result of the trauma of the war, he has become more inflexible. It's hard for him to do anything other than battle. And when he tells Camille that they don't have time to mourn Roberto, how much of that is that if... Quattro mourned every fallen comrade every time he could never stop mourning. Yeah. Like he's lived this life for so long, he cannot cope with death the way someone else might because he would go to pieces. He couldn't function. And it's the only way he knows how to be, and so it's the only way he can instruct Camille to be. So despite their very different approaches... I think there are a lot of similarities between Amaro, Quattro, and their situations. And their young K.A. named... Protégés. You know, cats and Camille wear very similar sweaters. And have similar haircuts. I was going to say that. <laughs> and would Amaro have hid his identity if he could? It's a fair question. If he could have taken on an assumed identity and disappeared, he might have. If it meant he could have had more freedom... He just didn't have that option. Since we're talking about Quattro's own feelings of shame and whether or not he is a coward, we do need to address one of the persistent fan rumors about his name. His name is Quattro Vagina. Sort of. It's actually Quattro Vagina. It's just that in the English transliteration, post like mid 90s, a decision was made for some reason that it would be more <laughs> appropriate to call him Vagina instead of Vagina. But if you find some of the older Gundam merch, including some old video games that were translated into English, it's still Quattro Vagina. The rumor for this is that he chose this name. Because he has four vaginas. Yes. No. <laughs> it is his fourth identity. So he was born Kasval Rem Degun. He was Edouard Mass when he was in hiding on Earth. He was Char Aznable during the war, and this is his fourth identity, Quattro Vagina. The fan rumor is that he chose the last name Vagina because he viewed himself post-war as a coward for abandoning his identity and going into hiding. So super sexist, but not in a way that is at all out of step with the times in which this was created. Yeah. People frequently use euphemisms for vagina as insults that imply someone is cowardly or weak. But what can you do? You can stop using those terms as insults. That's what you can do. There are so many better words for coward. Like coward. Lily-livered. Anyway. Anyway. I say it's a fan rumor because I've never found any solid source on that. And there are other explanations. This is a series that is very interested in gender and gender construction. There is a character in the series whose name is Hyman. 
it wouldn't be that weird for other characters to also be named after various different parts of the reproductive anatomy. <laughs> Perfect. And so we don't really know. If you have a solid source on this, uh, I'd love to see it. But I think this stands out as one of many, many unconfirmed fan rumors about Zeta, probably dating back to some Usenet chat room in the very, very early days of the internet. The climax of the battle in this episode involves the shuttle rocketing off into the atmosphere, being followed by this new transforming mobile armor, mobile suit. I'm just going to call it a mobile monster. And then in order to catch up with it, Quattro instructs Camille to have the Mark II sit on the Hyakushiki's shoulders. And then they both jet off into the heavens together. And then the Mark II essentially jumps off of the Shiki in order to go after the mobile monster. This is a weird way to have this scene play out. There's no particular reason why they have to jump on each other's shoulders like this. You know, in theory, they could have just been fast enough to chase after it alone or grabbed one of those sled things that the other Titans mobile suits were using. Like there are other ways to do this. Why have one mobile suit stand kind of goofily upon the shoulders of another? My first thought in the episode was that they're potentially trying to set up some kind of combining toy. <laughs> that if, you know, they looked around and, oh, these these mobile suit-like toys that combine into bigger, <laughs> more complicated mobile suit-like toys are very popular. This is the Zeta Gundam version of a combiner? Just y Yeah, just, <laughs> just stack them. <laughs> Then they would have two, like, hang on to the arms and, you know. Anyway, that was my first thought. But my second thought is that they are making a statement about interdependence and how they can't go it alone. Hmm. I agree with you that that seems like the most natural read of this particular scene. But I hesitate to say that that is what it is about because that doesn't really fit with the rest of the episode. As we've been talking about, the rest of the episode is not so much about interdependence and teamwork as it is about like you, your individual self, need to do what you can do. You can't escape from the responsibilities of who you are. Alternatively, we have Camille literally standing on the shoulders of the previous generation's heroes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's not Quattro standing on Camille's shoulders. It's Camille on Quattro's. So that Camille can be the one to spot the hole in the armor and to do the perfectly timed shot that takes out the mobile monster. So that Camille can do what Quattro couldn't. But Camille only gets to be the hero standing on the legacy of men like Quattro and Amaro. He is their successor both literally within the narrative of the story and in the metatextual sense of after the odd success of First Gundam, the instructions to Tomino were, okay, do that again. <laughs> you know, Zeta couldn't exist without standing on the shoulders of First Gundam. I think that that is very true. There is one other thing in the episode, though, that does go towards that idea of interdependence. Earlier in the episode, when Fra is hassling Amuro to get married... One of the things she says to him is like, you can't stay cooped up here forever. You can't stay locked inside yourself forever. You have to reach out. You have to make connections with other people and accept those connections. And what has happened to 
Quattro, what has happened to Amuro since the war. And I think this has happened to Kai also to a certain degree. It's a certain amount of atomization. Everyone has spread out and become disconnected from each other. War is bad in a large sense because of the way it divides people. But the Gundam message is a little more nuanced than that because war can also bring people together. And that coming together, that unity, that's good, even if it is a product of war. And we see a little bit of this when, at the end of the episode, Quattro and Camille's mobile suits grasp hands. In an inversion of the previous episode, because at the end of The Winds of Jaburo, Camille jumps up onto the Garuda first and is there to catch Quattro. And at the end of this episode, Quattro is on the Garuda first and is there to catch Camille. I don't have much more than this to say about it, but the mobile monster, as you termed it, is so cool. <laughs> I really like it. Your favorite so far? Yeah, I think it might be. It doesn't nice. look that cool when it's in its mobile armor form. Yeah, it, just it looks, looks kind of goofy, like a, like, a, like a hat. I was going to say it looks like a cheesy UFO, <laughs> like old school UFO drawing. But when it's in its mobile suit shape, so cool. For those of you who are tracking Nina's favorite mobile suits, there is a new leader for Zeta. We should talk about the letter for a moment. The letter is very famous in the Gundam fandom because of the meme it spawned. Captain Quattro, he is a Char. Which is amazing. Uh, it's always a fine line with English though, right? Because these are some people who wrote, frankly, a very understandable English letter for yeah. whom English was not their first language and they did an excellent job. So I don't want to poke fun at their English language right. skills when they wrote a very good letter. But to a, a native speaker's ear, it does sound funny. It's a funny phrasing. Yeah, it's worth noting that Japanese, like many languages, does not have articles. Words like a and the are very difficult for a lot of people to learn how to use properly in English. They're one of the most difficult parts of English to get just right. So it's a great letter. And it provides some evidence in the ongoing debate of what language is everyone speaking. Kai, at least, is speaking English. <laughs> well, he's writing English. Is he speaking English? Hmm. Fra did say she was going to Japan. This is, I believe, the first actual mention of Japan in Gundam. Yeah, I think so. One of our patrons pointed out that in the letter, it's all written normally, except for the names Frabo and Shar, which are written in all caps. I'm not sure why that's the case, but I can speculate that probably the letter was originally written in Japanese and then given to someone to translate into English. And I would guess that in the original letter, the names Frabo and Shar were written in Katakana, while the rest of the letter was written in a mix of kanji and hiragana, which is why when it was translated into English, the person doing the translating wrote those words in a different sort of script. Katakana, in addition to being used for loan words, is sometimes used uh, for emphasis or to highlight certain words in a text. The same way in English you might use italics or bold letters to emphasize certain words. The other thing that I noticed and enjoyed very much in the letter is even though he is conveying some information that he thinks is vitally important and urgent and of so much importance that he needed to like escape <laughs> and go and in further investigate. 
he still spends half the letter <laughs> saying like, "I hope you and your family are well. I'm so envious of your, <laughs> you know, wonderful wife and children that you have. That's so great." Which, while I imagine was typical in most letter writing traditions for a really long time, that kind of long introduction with a lot of just kind of polite. I don't even know what to call it. Chit chat <laughs> <laughs> has kind of fallen out of favor in English. We tend to do very brief introductions before getting to the heart of what the letter is about. In Japanese, at the time of this show, if you are writing a letter to someone, you would absolutely spend a fair portion of the beginning of the letter in polite chit chat before getting to、uh, something substantive. If you are making a request or giving somebody a piece of information. You have a book that is all about how to write letters in Japanese, don't you? I do, and a lot of it has to do with what introductions do you use and what sign-offs do you use, depending on what the letter is about. This is a book that I'm pretty sure predates email, though. <laughs> I assume the rules for email are quite different. <laughs> I mean, quite different, but I assume email is still more formal in Japanese than it would be in English. We get an ending narration. Which is not typical, and the ending narration says that with this most recent battle, it is now obvious to everyone, because apparently it wasn't before, <laughs> that the Federation is at war with itself. So, first stunner of that is that apparently a lot of people didn't know this already. As Tom mentioned earlier, apparently Earthnoids are very sheltered <laughs> and have just not been aware. The, you know, the Titans have managed to keep it all under wraps until now. And we know that the Titans have some censorship, some control of media, even out in the colonies. In the early episodes, Camille talks about how he knows about who Amuro Ray is because he reads the underground press. The existence of an underground press suggests a very tightly controlled official press. Before this, Caraba managed to take control of the entirety of the Kennedy Space Center. So, what does this tell us? It tells us that Caraba is probably the name. Of like an actual organized AUG sympathizer group within the Federation itself that was able to essentially infiltrate and take over certain spaces and certain resources without having to come to violence. Although the Kennedy Space Center at this point seems to be mostly a museum, it is still a functioning space launching site. But all they have are these old like museum piece shuttles. So it's not like they took over a military base, but and some old mobile suits, and they saw that it could be strategically valuable, and they took it over. Well, in Hayato, when they call him director,、mm -hmm. he's the director of this museum, though clearly he thinks of that as secondary to his role in Caraba because he sheds no tears out of having to abandon Kennedy and go wherever. We have Caraba willing to make a pretty stupendous sacrifice to protect the, this group of. Aug soldiers and get them back into space. They give up a ton of resources, fuel, ships that they're never going to get back. They wind up keeping one of the mobile suits, but most of the mobile suits are going back to space as well. They're going to have to move, as Tom said. They've they've lost this nice, secure, up to now secret base of operations. They're on the run, and they're willing to do all of this for. Aug's goals in support of Aug, but a lot of them must be Earthnoids. Yeah, perhaps all of them. So, who are the kind of people who join Caraba? Like, I'm sort of imagining a mix of P 
people who support space noid independence because they're like, well, of course you want to be self-governing. That's totally reasonable. You know, in the same way that various countries supported the end of apartheid in South Africa. It wasn't in their country, but alternatively, I also imagine a lot of environmentalists, since apparently a central pillar of AUG and of a lot of space noid independence movements is a preservation of the ecology of Earth. As well as, I would imagine, anti-government dissidents in general would see the AUG agenda as a way to undermine and destabilize the Federation's control. Or the Titans specifically. It's not hard to imagine someone like Bright, who had been with the Federation his whole career, who sees what begins to happen with the Titans and says, like, I think the Federation can do good, but not while it's under the thumb of this like terrifying secret police organization. Absolutely. And and in a feeling that the only way to extricate the two is to fight against the Federation and Titans together. And that's the other thing that this ending narration tells us, which hasn't actually been clear until this point, that Ayug and Karaba are part of the Federation, that this is a war within the Federation. And so even though Ayug is a rogue group, they are a rogue group of Federation officers and some other people too, but mostly Federation officers who are unhappy with the way the Federation is going. In fact, that means this is a conflict a lot like the internal army faction politics of Japan in the pre-war years, when different factions within the army with radically different ideas of how the government should be organized and run and what the objectives of the nation should be were fighting both with words and with bullets to decide which of them was going to be preeminent. At the same time that there is all this internal conflict in the Federation, organizations like the Federation have a vested interest in maintaining the appearance of unity because it's part of what uh, allows them to derive authority, right? Like if even people within the organization don't agree that what it's doing is correct, it undermines all of their authority to govern or police or whatever it is they do. It will be very interesting to see, now that the conflict is in the open, how it escalates. And on a similar ominous note, the episode opens with Grips arriving at Luna 2. It has been moved to a more defensible position. The Titans are fortifying. With Basque's commander, the hinted-at uh, level above. Jamitov Hyman. You know... Grips probably would have been really vulnerable during that transport mission. It would have been a really good time to attack Grips. Well, it was on the move. Yeah. Quattro even knew about that, but maybe he felt like he couldn't say anything to Wong Li about Grips moving because he didn't want to give away his independent source of information or because he doesn't really want Ayuk to succeed. And now our research. This week we are covering The Valkyrie, some art, Amuro's interior decorator, and Aristia. One of the first casualties of the Titans' attack on Karaba's Kennedy Space Center base is the airplane that Hayato flew to meet up with Quattro's expeditionary force in the air over Jaburo. This is a real-world plane, and a very specific one. Indeed, we know exactly what plane Hayato was flying because there is, and at this point in the Universal Century, I now need to say was, 
just one of them in the whole world. It is the XB-70 Valkyrie AV-1, United States Air Force serial number 62-0001, sole survivor of a pair of experimental supersonic bombers that had once been envisioned as the future of America's strategic bombing force. By the time the Valkyrie program was canceled, the bomber it was intended to replace, the B-52 Stratofortress, had been in service for six years. The B-52 is still in service today, more than 50 years later, while the last Valkyrie languishes in a museum in Dayton, Ohio. But why? Why is the Valkyrie there and not at the forefront of America's Air Force? There's this recurring trend in technological development that fascinates me. When one means of doing some task gets replaced by a new way of doing the same thing, there is often a moment where the evolutionary development of the one technology and the revolutionary introduction of the new one intersect. My favorite example of this phenomenon is the little-remembered zip drive, a blink-and-you'll-miss-it little blip in the history of physical storage media. I remember zip drives. (laughs) Even if you've never used one, you're probably familiar with floppy disks, especially the three-and-a-half-inch hard plastic diskettes that were ubiquitous in computing from the late 1980s through the 1990s and gave us the icon we all recognize as SAVE today. These originally boasted an impressive storage capacity of around 400 kilobytes. But by 1986, they had evolved into the double-sided, high-density 1.44 megabyte diskette. If you bought a video game in the 90s, chances are it came on one of these. Actually, chances are it came on a stack of these. Monkey Island 2 came on 11 disks. Somewhat more obscure adventure game Beneath a Steel Sky came on 15. But all of this is to set the scene for the introduction of our hero, the Zip Disk. The Zip Disk was a floppy disk on steroids. It was thick, noticeably heavy, and required a specialized drive, which cost around $200, to accommodate its extra size. But it justified all of that extra size and expense with its performance. This bad boy had the capacity of nearly 100 floppy disks. You could put so many games on it. It and its rival, the Super Disk, were the ultimate evolution of the floppy disk. In the world of the floppy disk, the Zip Disk was king. But the Zip Disk did not live in the world of the floppy disk. By the time the Zip Disk came onto the market, it was already competing with compact disks, which offered storage capacities greater than five times that of the Zip Disk. Later generations of Zip Disk would rival those early CDs, but by then, DVDs had become common. And even the earliest of those doubled that most advanced zip disk. And that's not even to mention the new up-and-comer, Mr. USB Flash Drive. Imagine all of the resources that must have been poured into making a better floppy disk. Imagine the late nights dreaming up ways to make the next version of the floppy disk just a little bit better than the last one. I guess what I'm saying is, the Valkyrie was kind of like a zip disk. In the 1950s, U.S. military planners practically never saw a problem that didn't have a nuclear solution. Badly outnumbered by the conventional armed forces of the Soviet Union and communist China, the U.S. relied on the threat of nuclear retaliation to keep the scales roughly even. And in the early 50s, nuclear retaliation still meant nuclear bombs delivered by a bomber. The twin threats to a long-range nuclear-armed bomber were the blast radius of its own payload— Because remember that by this point, the U.S. is building hydrogen bombs, weapons as much as a thousand times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. And the other big threat, enemy fighter interceptors. The solution to both problems turned out to be the same. Fly high, 
and fly fast. And that's exactly what the Valkyrie was meant to do. It could fly at three times the speed of sound, more than a kilometer per second, and fast enough to get from U.S. forward operating bases in Turkey and North Africa to Moscow in under an hour. And it flew at an altitude 21 kilometers above the Earth, that is 70,000 feet or 1,636 rods. <laughs> For context, the Valkyrie was more than four times faster than the B-52 Stratofortress and flew six kilometers higher. It was a monster of a plane at the very bleeding edge of aviation technology. Without modern heat-resistant materials like carbon fiber and unable to use airframe aluminum because the heat created by traveling at Mach 3 would have melted it right off, they instead used stainless steel, titanium, and a special alloy called Rene 41, all assembled using an ingenious honeycomb construction design that helped to dissipate the intense heat around the plane. So what went wrong with this incredible plane? Well, by the time the Valkyrie was ready for construction, an altogether different technology had made it effectively irrelevant. Surface-to-air missiles had replaced interceptors as the biggest threat to bombers, and even the Valkyrie couldn't fly faster or higher than one of those. And intercontinental missiles could now deliver massive nuclear payloads deep into enemy territory at a fraction of the price of a bomber and without the same risk. Ultimately, two Valkyrie prototypes were built because, after all, the plane was so advanced that it could still be used for valuable aviation experiments, and we had already spent a fortune just designing the thing. The first was completed and flown for the first time on September 21st, 1964. The second, an improved model based on data from the first, flew on July 17th, 1965. Just over a year later, Valkyrie II was one of four aircraft all fitted with general electric engines assigned to fly in close formation so the company could get a good photo, which they reportedly intended to use on the cover of a brochure for an upcoming shareholders meeting. Without warning, an F-104 starfighter flying alongside the Valkyrie veered too close. Their wings clipped and the fighter rolled toward and over the Valkyrie, shearing off the larger plane's stabilizers. The fighter was on fire almost immediately, but for 16 seconds as the camera in the chase plane snapped away, the Valkyrie seemed to fly on unharmed. This was an illusion, and the photos show it slowly rolling into an inverted spiral, trailing black smoke as it accelerated toward the ground near Barstow, California. The pilot of the Starfighter, an expert test pilot, was killed during the collision. One of the Valkyrie's pilots managed to eject, surviving despite severe injuries when his ejector capsule landed but the other, an Air Force major, was killed in the crash. The lone surviving Valkyrie flew test missions for another two years, but was then retired to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and the National Museum of the United States Air Force, where it resides today. There is something poetic, I think, about Hayato piloting the single surviving Valkyrie. Besides the fact that it was designed to be a nuclear bomber and we first see it right after the Jaburo bombs explode, Hayato in First Gundam was always part of a duo. At first he was paired with Ryu, then with Amuro, then with Kai. But Ryu died, Amuro retired, and Kai leaves him behind again in this episode. In a sense, Hayato has outlived all his partners, even if, like the surviving Valkyrie 1, he was never quite as capable as they were. There's also some neat synchronicity around the Valkyrie. Remember when Nina researched defectors for episode 2.5, Loyalties? One of the Russian defectors whose stories she explored was Viktor Belenko, 
the pilot who stole one of the mysterious MiG-25 jet fighters and brought it to Japan so that the U.S. could have a look at it. Well, the MiG-25, or Foxbat as NATO called it, was originally designed by the Soviets specifically as an interceptor that could fly high enough and fast enough to catch the Valkyrie. And the Valkyrie was at one point planned as America's first nuclear-powered airplane. As in, there was going to be a miniature nuclear reactor aboard the plane that would give it practically unlimited range. Just like a Universal Century mobile suit. The reasoning for this was that to get a plane big enough to carry a nuclear bomb going as fast as they needed the Valkyrie to go would require a massive amount of fuel. So much fuel that it would be impossible, they thought, for it to have the range necessary to get where it needed to go if it used conventional chemical fuel. So like I said before, this was an era when military planners saw a nuclear solution to every problem. But it turns out there was a far cleverer solution to that fuel efficiency problem. At supersonic speeds, the nose of the plane would create a blast wave. And then, and this is the clever bit, if they shaped the nose and the wings just right, they could actually have the plane ride atop the blast wave, using it to provide lift and saving tons of fuel. So that's right. The Valkyrie is the very first wave rider. <laughs> it is therefore the ancient ancestor to the flying armor Camille used to enter Earth's atmosphere. In much the same way that the disc Camille used to store his designs for something called the Zeta Gundam that were used to develop that flying armor was in fact the distant descendant of the zip drive. It did have that look about it. <laughs> In the talkback, we spend a fair amount of time on Amuro's house. It's very impressive. <laughs> All the artwork, the big, heavy, ornate furniture, the grounds, you know, it's clearly meant to be lush and luxurious and sort of awe-inspiring. As happened when we saw the painting in Quattro's apartment, we thought a couple of the artworks in Amuro's home looked familiar, and so we set out to identify them. The first group of frames on the wall are some portraits and a certificate small enough to be lacking in detail and probably personal, so we didn't try to find any of those. A later shot shows more of the room from the same angle. Further along the wall, there's a small alcove with a vase in it. Again, the vase is not detailed enough or weirdly shaped enough that I think I could find a specific vase it's a reference to. <laughs> it is, however, too big to be Macvey's vase. True. It's not a trophy of war. Or is it? We'll get to that later. And there's another larger alcove with a Madonna and Child statue, so Mary holding the baby Jesus. This shot is from fairly far back, and it's hard to know if the low level of detail in the statue is because it's based on a statue that's less realistic and more modern, and so maybe more the suggestion of a woman holding a baby and less explicit. Or if this is just because it's the background and background elements are always less detailed to make the whole thing easier to animate. The one odd thing about it is that in this statue, Mary is holding Jesus on her right side, and in most statues, she holds him on her left. Hmm. But that was not enough <laughs> to <laughs> identify it. It's very common subject matter for statues. There are a lot of statues of Mary holding the infant Jesus, so we were not able to identify a specific statue. Farther down that same wall, but from a closer vantage, we get a good look at two paintings with ornate gilt frames. The first was the easier to identify. It's a windmill with a cloudy sky behind it. And the placement of other objects and buildings in the painting make me 99% sure of what it is. 
With apologies for my attempts at Dutch pronunciation, it appears to be by Jacob van Rustel, and it is the Windmill at Wijkbij Dursted. This is a Dutch Golden Age painting dating from 1670. It is currently owned by the Amsterdam Museum and is on loan to the Rijksmuseum, which is also in Amsterdam. I could not find information on its evaluation or any sales records. It was bequeathed to the Amsterdam Museum in 1854 and has been theirs ever since, and on loan to the Rijksmuseum for most of that time. It is among their most popular paintings based on sales of art postcards. It comes in third after a Rembrandt and a Vermeer, so lofty company. Ooh. The second painting was more difficult. It's a group of nudes under what is probably a tree. It turns out there are even more paintings of groups of nudes bathing than there are of windmills. <laughs> so I kicked this one to our patrons. Big thanks to Amac, Ennui on Me, and Gus for identifying this one. It is The Bathers by Jean-Honor Fragonard. This is a Rococo painting dating from 1765. It was sold several times in the decade following its completion, but was acquired by the French government in 1869 and has ever since then been at the Louvre. In 2013, one of Fragonard's other paintings, a portrait, sold at auction for just over 28 million US dollars. Wow. The previous record sale price for one of his works was less than a third of that, but was also back in 1999. As the scene continues, we see the wall by the fireplace and five more paintings, none of which I could identify. But given that the first two are real paintings, it seems reasonable to suspect that these are also references to real-world artworks. We catch the barest glimpse of the corner of a black-and-white painting or sketch of what appears to be a nude woman in a rather fancy hat. <laughs> she has long hair hanging down and is smiling, and we never see the whole frame, but the work might just be of her from the waist or chest up. Then there are two abstracts, one red and one black. My first thought was that these might be a reference to Jackson Pollock, but I couldn't find any that were a good fit, and so I suspect these might reference another painter. They are dense with color, no white space, and no clear shapes or lines, really just like blotches of variations of color. But there's a lot of texture to the paintwork, so unlike a modern color field artist where it tends to be very clean, straight lines, there's a lot of texture to the paint, a lot of blotchiness. Yes. There is also a small black and white abstract under the red abstract uh, that is more like a Miro, though I couldn't find a specific piece to match it to. And finally, one rather modern looking landscape. There's a red sky with a white sun or moon, but I think probably moon on it, uh, over a white and gray field underneath. It looks so familiar to me, but I searched and couldn't find anything that was quite right. There is also some miscellaneous bric-a-brac on the mantle, a small vase, two plates that are probably meant to be Delftware pottery, so a uh, famous style of Dutch pottery, uh, and two small paintings that look as if they're of buildings. The one behind the photograph of Matilda looked familiar to me and has a tower in it, maybe a bell tower. I will post pictures. If you know what any of these paintings are or who painted them, please let us know. You will have our immense gratitude and a shout out in next week's episode when we follow up with any new info. Something very telling happened when I was researching this. I was talking to my family because I was hoping they might be able to identify some of these paintings as well. And my mother's assumption had been that these were all prints or reproductions. 
But my automatic assumption was that these were all the paintings themselves, <laughs> the actual art. What about you, Tom? What did you assume when you I saw I assumed these? it was all the actual art. And I say this is telling because I believe we come to that assumption because of what we've been shown about the Universal Century in First Gundam and in Zeta. We know Machvey was looting relics. We know it's a highly stratified, classist society. We know that wealth is very concentrated. These are the kinds of conditions in which you might see a crumbling of certain public or publicly accessible infrastructure like art museums and a concentration of artwork in the hands of wealthy individuals and groups. War also often wreaks havoc on art and artifacts. Things are looted or destroyed pretty frequently. And it's noteworthy that in Gundam so far, we've seen very little of what might be called public life. We get a little bit of shopping on side six. We know that there's a news channel with news spaceships on side six. We saw a little bit of shopping, like a shopping mall on Amman. But libraries, museums, representational government, debates newspapers we don't Theaters, see these concerts things. right yeah we get the tiniest glimpse of camille's school but we don't know is that a public school a private school we don't know what exactly it's an exemplar of one other striking thing about the interior of amaro's house was there are a couple of built-in planters that screen the sitting area where kika and let's are having a snack from the rest of the house these planters are tall, sort of half wall height, and look as though they're made of brick. Plus, they've got hedge-like shrubs growing in them. Along the side, those shrubs are lower, presumably so they don't obscure the view of the artwork on the wall. But along the back, these are very tall, almost to the ceiling. They're the sort of shrubs you would expect to see in a garden, out front, on the wall of the estate. So Tom asked me, was this some sort of 80s interior design trend, household shrubs? Uh, and the short answer is yes. Really? Not unlike today, indoor plants were very popular in the 1980s, and there was usually a profusion of them. Potted figs and ficuses, hanging ferns, and so on. Towards the end of the decade, this shifted away from that indoor jungle vibe to more of a having just a couple of dramatic statement plants. Uh, depending on where you grew up and the age of your local mall, uh, that might be your best reference for the indoor planters that we see in this episode. They were very common in malls built in the 1980s, as well as in hotel and office lobbies and other indoor public areas. But they aren't just in public spaces. They crop up in homes built from the 50s to the 70s as well. Hmm. Sometimes against a wall near a window or skylight, and sometimes in the middle of a room used to partition spaces. The ones that act as room dividers are typically at half-wall height, made of brick or drywall. Most of my information about these comes from people who have bought an older home, don't want to use the built-in planter, and are wondering what to do with it, <laughs> how to convert it into something else. Uh, my final question about these planters was, would these kinds of plants grow indoors? And under the right conditions, hedge plants like boxwoods or Japanese privet can grow indoors. So Amaro's indoor plants are not at the height of fashion for the mid-80s, perhaps, but would not have looked out of place 
and would still have been around from recent construction in the 70s. I know in the Japanese interior design tradition, if you go far enough back, room dividers were an essential part of how homes were organized, breaking up large open spaces into separate, more intimate ones. Do you think there's any connection between that tradition and the appearance of these room dividing planters in Zeta? Perhaps. I think in this case, the built-in nature, the fact that they don't move mm. is very different from Japanese room dividers. And it's clearly a Western styled house. There's nothing about this house that says it's Western and Japanese. That's true. Some of the ceramics look to be Chinese, Korean, or Japanese, but those were common ceramics to collect in the West as well. And that's the only Asian art we really see. There is a narrative convention in the Greek epic tradition called aristia, from the Greek word for excellence. It's a passage mostly but not exclusively focused on a single hero, who is inspired by the gods, ritually arms himself, and goes on a rampage, slaying other lesser heroes one after another until the end of the aristia. In Homer's Iliad, aristia usually end with the hero being wounded, performing some ultimate achievement, and then retiring. But in the epic cycle, those lost epic poems that filled in the details of the Trojan War before and after the Iliad, the Aristia instead ends when the champion, having cut his way through the ranks of the lesser heroes and defeated one enemy of significance, encounters one of the great heroes and is himself slain. One such classic Aristia does appear in the Iliad, when Achilles' young lover Patroclus dons Achilles' armor and rampages through the Trojan ranks ultimately killing the son of Zeus, Sarpedon, before being killed by Hector, mightiest of all the Trojan heroes. As a narrative construct, the Aristia serves to rank the different heroes against each other. It tells the audience where, for example, Patroclus, all the minor heroes he kills during his rampage, Sarpedon, and Hector stand in relationship to each other. It also allows the momentum of the battle to swing back and forth, the Iliad is a catalogue of Greek defeats while Achilles sulks in his tent, but during the intermittent Aristias of Diomedes, Teucer, Agamemnon, Odysseus, and Idomeneus, the hard-pressed Greeks are able to win some ground back for a time. It's also a fundamentally sound way of telling heroic stories, especially in an oral tradition, where the formulaic nature helps the bard to remember the story. It also has analogs in every epic tradition that I have encountered, so while the word is Greek and much of the scholarship is focused on the particular examples from the Greek epics, I think of the Aristia as more general than that. Seeing a secondary hero become inspired in the moment, achieve much, be wounded, and then die facing a stronger opponent is an efficient and remarkably effective way to make us care about them. Think about the death of Boromir at the end of The Fellowship of the Ring. Or for an example closer to home, Slager Law at Solomon, or Shar Aznable at Abawaku when he rampages through the Federation forces hunting Amaro, just as Diomedes once hunted Aeneas. Or Roberto at Kennedy. Rising to the occasion, defending the shuttle filled with his defenseless companions, Lieutenant Roberto fights like we have never seen him fight before. He kills one titan after another. At one point, he tears off a piece of his own mobile suit and throws it at an enemy. Now, he is wounded. Fearlessly, he faces the new mobile monster, the greatest hero from the Titan's detachment. 
and he is slain. Shot through the belly, his mobile suit collapses to its knees and explodes. In tribute to Roberto, then, who survived the one-year war, and for seven years after, who died under a false name far from home, holding the line so the companions who had shared his exile and eased his loneliness might escape. An adaptation from the Iliad. O rash man, O worker of violence, who with his arrows slays men and vexes even the gods that hold Olympus. Fool that he is, the brave-hearted man does not know that no mortal endures long who fights with monsters. Nor will his children ever play about his knees in later years when he has come home from the war, from the dread clash of arms. For all he is so mighty, still beware, lest he with flashing eyes meet one stronger. Lest in the night his long companion wake from sleep, made wise by some dark dreaming to unhappy tiding, and with long lamentings wake the household, all to sorrow at his defeat. All said, and even so, the Trojans surge along the line, where Apollo has opened the Greek stockade they pour, water through a levee. On every side the Greeks fall back, Unconquerable Hector with his torchbearers threatens fire for the ships. All said and even so, three Achaean heroes stand to meet his charge. Mighty Ajax, at his right his brother Teucer, at his left Lycophron, an exile from some foreign land, long acquainted to Ajax's house. The Trojan van they meet in gory battle. Faithful Lycophron bends his singing bow, sends barbed shafts among the foe, and fells indomitable Hector's charioteer. Enraged Hector hurls his shining spear, his thirsty javelin like the thunderbolt. But Ajax, all in gory red, stepping nimbly, shunned the well-aimed throw. All said, and even so, the barbed lance through some poor flesh must pass. And in the belly of unhappy Lycophron it came to rest. An exile long sustained at Ajax's board, faithful servant to his warlike lord, in peace and war forever at his side, near his loved master, as he lived, he died. With anguish, Ajax views the piercing sight. At his bidding, Tuker rushed amidst the foe. How keen his sword, how swift his blows. Impatient Tuker with flashing eyes, through Hector's armor a gap espies. Between trembling fingers a chosen arrow draws, then hissed his arrow, then the bowstring sung. Only had the weapon found the destined way, but Hector was not doomed to perish then. The master of this hero's fate, his present death withstands. The poem in honor of Roberto is from the Iliad, Book 5, the Aristia of Diomedes, and Book 15, The Defense of the Ships. 
It was partly inspired by the 1899 Pope translation and the 1924 Murray translation. Next time on episode 2.15, it's been a long, long time. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 14 and Sentimental Youths. Cats needs to keep up. The answer to Camille's question is yes. Pointy Jared. A problem that can't be solved with fists. Cyber new types. Beautiful transformation. A gold-tinged reunion. The best mom in Gundam. Space aliens and old bad habits. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, It is a privilege to be Char's wingman on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from new patron, Adam C. Thanks, Adam. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. When I have the, like... Uh, the rainforest metaphor chimpanzee, a species of primate that forms family bonds just like yours. I'm going to fade the dialogue out right after that, and I'm going to have some ominous music come in, and I'm going to repeat, just like yours, just like yours. <laughs> yeah, war, super cool. <laughs> so many feelings. The sirens want you to know you should join today. (laughs) So I have a kind of unifying idea for what this episode does with Amuro and later with Char. I'm wondering if I should say it now or wait until we've talked about them and then say it as my little like capstone. The fundamental principle of the five-paragraph essay states (laughs) that you should say it at the beginning and at the end. And his name is Quattro. He's very insistent about that in this episode. We'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) Let's not jump ahead. (laughs) Me, 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 me. It's all about me. Nina. Only Nina. <laughs> Nina, 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 Nina.
Zeta Gundam, episode 13, Shuttle Lunch. Shuttle Lunch? What? What? (laughs) I could have some lunch. Amuro comes back from the war, calling himself Ryu Jose, gets a job at an ad agency, (laughs) runs through a few wives. 